is my great pleasure to uh, introduce our guest today. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press Politics and Public Policy. And we have as our guest today one of the genuine pioneers in, um, in digital technology as applied to uh, affecting the change in, in the world. I won't even just say journalism because it's bigger than that. And, uh, and Andy Carvin has been really engaged in it. He told me before uh, our show and tell today that he had a computer uh, in his school when he was in the first grade, going uh, up a shadow of NASA in, uh, in the coast of Florida with a community of engineers and, uh, and sort of inclination to be a nerd himself, he said, from the, from, from the beginning. Uh, but he has really been one of the people who has changed the world through technology. Uh, he has been very much involved in the digital divide issues. He's now the senior strategist at NPR, and as you, I'm sure many of you know, he's very, very involved in uh, the Arab Spring uh, journalistically. He has spent a lot of his energy and imagination uh, in te technological terms trying also to intervene and be helpful and to use the skills and energy and knowledge of citizens in crisis situations. It's really quite an array of, uh, of accomplishments when you look at his resume. Uh, he is uh, uh, someone who's only 40 years old and has at least, I would say, 40 more years of uh, coming up with new and different things. Uh, Andy, we're very glad to have you with us. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, by the way, yeah. we are uh, tweeting uh, <laughs> this, and we have a uh, hashtag for this, this session of Andy Chat, if in fact some of you want to do that. I want you to tell them what you told me about how many times a day you tweet. Oh, I'll get to that. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm really, really honored to be here. Uh, I'm hoping to keep this as informal as possible, so um, I'm probably going to talk 15, 20, 30 minutes. I don't know exactly how long it is. I just talk sometimes. So feel free to interrupt me at any point, but I want to make absolutely sure that we have the second half of the hour focused specifically on conversation and debate and whatever else you'd like, like to do. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I thought it would be useful for me to just give a little bit of background about myself what I've been doing. So I, I, Alex definitely hit on a bunch of the highlights. Uh, I'm, I'm currently a senior strategist at NPR, which is an intentionally vague title uh, that uh, allows me to do what I was originally hired to do. Um, I, I came to NPR just over five years ago um, under the, the idea that I would be there to be a guinea pig and a tinkerer. Uh, I'm, I'm not a techie anymore. When I was a kid, I used to program, but I haven't written a single line of code since 1985, probably. Uh, so um, uh, I, I don't come from that side of, of the, uh, the techie divide. But I've, I've spent a lot of the last 15, 17 years experimenting with how the internet can be used for collaboration in different contexts. Before I came to NPR, uh, I spent a number of years running a project called the Digital Divide Network, which was an online community uh, actually one of the very first uh, non-profit social networks to uh, share ideas and strategies for bridging the digital divide around the world. Uh, and uh, we had around 40,000 members in 130 countries. And uh, so we focused on internet issues, media literacy issues, and a whole range of things. And while doing that work, um, I, I, I was in the fortunate position to travel a lot related to UN <coughs> events. and. Uh, I spent a number of uh, trips going to Tunisia for internet policy summits. Um, and I was based here in, in, in um, I was actually living in Brookline at the time, working in Newton, but, but I, I was in the Cambridge general area. And um, got to spend a lot of time with Rebecca McKinnon and Ethan Zuckerman over at the Berkman Center as they were developing what became known as Global Voices Online. So this is 2004, 2005. Uh, and so, um, I left for NPR not long after that for in 2006, but nonetheless, I had formed relationships with some of those early contributors to Global Voices, some of whom were bloggers and activists in the Middle East. And um, wasn't really relevant to the work I was going to do at NPR, but I did my best to follow their blogs and 
watched them on Twitter just because I thought what they were doing was interesting. And so in my time at NPR, as I said, I've essentially worked as a guinea pig. And my goal has been to really try to figure out new ways for, um, for journalists and the public to collaborate together to improve the quality and diversity of our journalism. And um, most of that has been using social media. Not all of it, but because it's often on a variety of platforms, I specifically do not have social media in my title. I also am sick of the phrase social media. <laughs> so um, senior strategist is, as I said, intentionally big. Um, nonetheless, I've, I've been doing a lot of work online uh, with online communities such as Twitter and uh, Facebook and elsewhere. Uh, I, got on, I got on Twitter fairly early in about February uh, 2007. And there weren't many people on there, so it was still a lot of people talking about what they had for breakfast. But there were also uh, news junkies and political junkies. And so uh, in December 2007, I remember being at an airport trying to get back home after a big snowstorm. And I saw a tweet on my phone saying that something had happened to uh, Benazir Bhutto in uh, Pakistan. And for the next hour and a half as I waited for my flight, I tried to track down as many people on Twitter who were either there or were talking about it or were finding different sources. And so uh, I ended up tweeting anything that I could find that had been confirmed or at least I witnessed. And that lasted for the couple of hours that I was waiting for my plane. And um, it really got me thinking not long after that, that there are times when I might be stranded at an airport not knowing what the hell is going on somewhere. But there might be other people out there who do. And so when the um, presidential election kicked into high gear in 2008, I decided I really wanted to focus. Oh, excellent. I wanted to focus on uh, what's going on um, on Twitter with the election. One of the first things we did, uh, at least substantially did, was we uh, challenged people during presidential debates to use the hashtag fact check. And so when the candidates would say something that seemed suspicious, we asked people to go research it. And of course, you'd have people saying, fact check, Obama's an idiot. Fact check, McCain's a jerk. But those were easy enough to ignore and look at other ones that would say, fact check, according to this OMB report on page 305, blah, 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 blah. And so during any given debate, we had 100, 200 people volunteering for us, essentially acting as assistant producers, uh, helping our core team of five or six reporters who were doing fact checking for radio and for our blogs, just expanding their, it was an incredible force multiplier, essentially, to do that kind of research. On election day itself, we worked with the folks at techpresident.com and the Personal Democracy Forum to create a project called Vote Report, where we asked people to use the hashtag Vote Report along with their zip code to describe any voting problems that we're experiencing. We also created a voicemail interface for people who weren't online uh, to do it. We had a text texting interface and one of the first iPhone and Android apps for people to submit news reports. And we had around 7,000 people participate and um, send in 12, 13,000 reports, give or take. And then we had a whole other group of volunteers who would look through all this data and try to triage it before it would get passed on to a smaller group of volunteers who would make it a list of maybe 15, 20, 30 ideas that we would then give to our election unit for deciding what they want to investigate. And so out of these 13, 14,000 reports, three of them ended up becoming stories on our live coverage that night. And all of this was happening in real time over the course of that. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had an affinity for experimenting with, uh, with Twitter for breaking news, as, as well as using social media for online, for, for real world disasters. Uh, the very first time I got involved with anything like that was on September 11th, 10 years ago. I set up a Yahoo group for people to figure out what was going on and try to separate fact from fiction. Uh, and worked on a variety of projects during Hurricane Katrina, the Boxing Day earthquake, and tsunami, and then later the Haiti quake. Um, and so I got to know a lot of people who were involved in first response and crisis reporting and crisis response around the world. And so all of these things were just kind of separate things that weren't connected anywhere except in my head occasionally, but even that was rare. Um, they were just among a variety of experiments that I was doing as part of my work. But then, a suddenly late December 2000 and uh, and, and 10 comes around, and I start seeing some of those very 
uh, people that I got to know through Global Voices and my trips to Tunisia tweeting about some obscure town called Sidi Bouzid, which I had never heard of. But as I watched the tweets over several days around Christmas time, I realized they were talking about a series of protests that had been set off by a young man who had set himself on fire after having his vegetable cart taken away from, his, uh, from the authorities. Uh, oversimplifying it, but that's essentially what happened. And that led to his neighbors protesting and neighboring towns protesting, and slowly it spread, first over Twitter, but then like, uh, uh, like a wildfire on Facebook, because in a country of only 11 million people, about 2 million of them were already on Facebook before the revolution started, which is a pretty high percentage for, for a North African country. And so as, as it started approaching New Year's, I began just bookmarking a lot of things that I was seeing because I thought it was interesting. And uh, ultimately, in early January, started using a tool called Storify to keep track of, track of it all. Because stuff happened so fast on Twitter, I was thinking, if our reporters ever wanted to dig into this and really look at the trajectory of how this played out online, it'd be nice to have a place where we could look at it, since Twitter isn't great at archiving stuff. And Storify was one of the first tools developed for doing just that. So, um, so starting in sometime first week of January, I think it was, I began collecting things, everything from uh, Wikipedia entries about Tunisia and its history, some WikiLeaks documents, but more importantly, things that people were sending me uh, via Twitter or that I was seeing via Twitter. Uh, some of the first news reports about the protests that were happening, but then unfortunately the videos aren't loading on here for some reason. Photos that were coming in, and over the course of several weeks, you can see there are literally hundreds and hundreds of items that are in here. And it went on and on and on, till finally President Ben Ali fled the country, and people were celebrating on Twitter almost as much as they were celebrating in the country. And I saw one of those contacts that I had met in Tunisia five years beforehand send out this tweet. Okay, Arabs, you've seen how it's done in Tunisia. Tag, you're it. <laughs> and it was at that point that I started looking at my 2011 calendar and started wondering which things I needed to start deleting, which possible conferences I should hedge my bets about going to. Uh, and it wasn't because I knew what was going to happen next, but within days, if not hours, of Tunisia happening, I started seeing people using another hashtag, Jan25. And this was for Egypt. And then within a few days after that, I started seeing Feb 14 for Bahrain, Feb 17 for Libya, Feb 20 for Morocco, Feb 24 for Algeria. Literally, it went on and on and on. All of these countries, you had protesters online saying, okay, we're gonna go try this ourselves. Now, in the case of Egypt, there was uh, a much more organized group, group of activists who had been protesting for a number of years. They have a long history of dissent in, in the country that's much more organized than other countries in the region. And so uh, they had already planned an event for January 25th anyway. But the momentum that started because of the Tunisian revolution kicked them into a high gear. And so what started as casual retweeting on my part for Tunisia became a bit of an obsession in Egypt. And as the protests turned into violent attacks by either the police or government thugs, I started seeing history playing out in real time. And I, uh, without even intending to, would find myself retweeting things 400 items a day, 500 items a day. I think it was on the, the day that the camels came in and attacked Tahrir Square. I tweeted for 20 hours straight about 1,400 tweets. But that doesn't mean I was just hitting retweet, retweet, retweet of all the sources that I found. That was a big part of it. But a lot of it was conversational and me asking a lot of questions. Because there was so much chaos going on, it was hard to tell what was true. And so sometimes I would ask people something as simple as confirmed question mark or source question mark. Mm -hmm. Do you have any footage of that question mark? And my Twitter account became a conversation. And not just me directly with the protesters on the ground. My Twitter followers started observing what I was doing, and then they started joining the conversation, too. And so if I would find a piece of video and say, OK, I think this is uh, inside Tahrir Square, someone on Twitter might come up and say, oh, no, 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 that's actually not 
Tahrir Square, that's Talat Har, the street ne right next door to it, and uh, that shows that it's spreading in this direction. Or I would post a photo of someone holding up a sign in Arabic, and my Twitter followers would write me back, and they would say, you know, that's not a slogan, that's a list of, of martyrs who died yesterday. And very quickly, I realized that my Twitter followers weren't just following me, they wanted to help me do my job better. And they were eager to work with me because they had an affinity for the Middle East, they were from the region, or they just had a subject matter expertise that would be helpful. And so as the revolution spread across the region, more and more people began to follow me, and I began to follow more people in each of these countries. And at some point in early February, when, the, uh, when things were really hitting its peak in Egypt, I literally stopped doing my day job. Um, and I stopped doing it by ignoring my day job. It wasn't an assignment. I just, you know, getting caught up in the tweets of you know, doing it 20 hours straight, you know, you, you forget to, to uh, send in, you know, get, uh, get things reimbursed and filling out forms for it. You forget to go to all staff meetings. Um, and after a while, I started actively just saying no to any meeting request I was getting because I just thought this was more interesting and more important. And I hope that no one would complain. Uh, a few days later, one of our uh, executives came over to my desk and just kind of leaned over into the cubicle and said, I don't know what you're doing, Andy, but please keep it up. And I took that as essentially carte blanche for me to keep experimenting and pushing the envelope as hard as I could and not having to worry about my other job duties. And that's been the case since then. I really have my normal job of doing senior strategist, you know, uh, stuff, whatever that was before, has now turned into whatever it is I'm doing now, which I'm still trying to define, and other people are trying to define. And um, over time, there have been a few instances that stand out of how my community has been able to work together. So, for example. Uh, here's an episode that happened in, in May where um, these photos were taken in the town of Misrata, which was under siege. And the New York Times journalist C.J. Chivers was there and had seen all of this, and he was working with his Pentagon sources to quickly identify what type, what this was. It seemed pretty clear this was some type of line, but people weren't totally sure. And so as C.J. started tweeting about it, I said to my followers, let's, let's make this interesting. Let's see if we can figure this out, too. And so looking at photos, people started researching different types of, of mines they could find online. They were discussing who were the manufacturers were and all sorts of other things. And uh, finding more photos of how they'd been deployed, finding videos that I hadn't seen before. And then within less than an hour, this guy here named Knowles Fan 2011 wrote, got it, they're Syrian va uh, variant of the Chinese type 84 landmines. And he was right. <coughs> He got it right. Uh, so within 45 minutes, my intrepid team of Twitter followers were able to figure this out. Another example I wanted to share here. Um, mm. find it here. Uh, Israeli weapons in Libya. I don't know how many of you saw this when this was going on. In March, uh, there were reports circulating within uh, some uh, Arab, Arabic language media outlets that Israel was supplying weapons to Gaddafi. And this was the proof they offered. It, this was a photo of one of the, uh, the, the rebels holding a, an 81 millimeter mortar shell of some type, which had a little doohickey crescent-like thing on it, and below that, uh, what looked like a Star of David. And so that was enough evidence for them. And so that started circulating like wildfire across, the, uh, across Twitter and across uh, Facebook and elsewhere. And so one of my Egyptian contacts, I was sitting I was sitting at South by Southwest in a session with some folks at the New York Times, and this guy just wrote to me and said, hey, do you know anything about this? And uh, I didn't, so I shared it with people, and then, I, and then asked rhetorically, for argument's sake, let's say Israel sold mortars to Libya. Would they be so dumb as to put a Star of David on them? <laughs> <laughs> the answer seemed pretty straightforward there. And so I, I started asking my Twitter followers to look into it. And once again, people came out of the woodwork to find different things. They went to a major Israeli arms manufacturer to see what if they sold anything of this type, and nothing was found there. Um, they found the symbol on other uh, mortar shells that were on site in Libya, 
and they all seem to be phrased a little differently and look a little differently. Uh, but pretty quickly, uh, people realized that the crescent symbol was actually a parachute symbol, and the star was very likely a symbol for a flare. So in other words, this wasn't necessarily a munitions round. It was what would be called a star shell or an illumination. And we could have stopped right there and said, OK, case closed. That seems simple enough. But nonetheless, the story kept circulating. So we figured, let's just really try to put this to bed with as many examples as possible. So my Twitter followers kept researching and finding information. Um, they found examples of the same symbols being used on, um, on shells that were manufactured in India, I think of France, Eastern Europe, and England. This is a schematic from World War One that they found on, on uh, Wiki Commons, I think. And they found a similar one from World War II, explaining this is what's inside a star shell. And coincidentally, look at what the symbol is there. And so, uh, and here's one that was made in India. And so we felt like we pretty much closed the case at that point. Uh, except for the fact, a couple weeks later, Al Jazeera Arabic ran uh, another story on the same topic and allowed some a uh, soldier, a Libyan soldier in the field to say, uh, an opposition folder say, we found these. Not only are they Israeli, they're proof that Israel is supplying chemical weapons. Mm. And we thought, oh God, here we go. So I asked all the people who worked for me before, can we just let's try this one more time and see if there's any more information we can pull together to really sum this up. And ultimately, what they found was this. The identification of ammunition, a document from NATO in 2008, which specifies the type of iconography that can be used on any of the munitions that are going to be available within the, the NATO community. And on page 27 or whatever it was, we found this. The International Symbols for Star Shells and Illumination Rounds. And so we basically stopped at that point. It didn't mean that the media stopped. They kept, like Press TV a couple of days later picked it up again. But I didn't have to do any more work at this point because random followers of mine in Beirut and in Egypt and elsewhere would say, please take a look at this and reconsider your report. Thank you. And so because we documented all of this and put it on Storify, the few other times this, the story surfaced again in, in uh, Arab media, I didn't have to debunk it. Some of my uh, Arabic-speaking speaking followers just took it to themselves <coughs> and shamed these news organizations at jumping to conclusions. And so this, I think, is one of the best examples of how my Twitter following, they're my newsroom. You know, in, in some ways, uh, it, it's really hard to describe what I do. Like, I, 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 at first I was calling my, my Twitter account a form of newswire, but that doesn't really do it justice because a lot of what I tweet I know for a fact is not true, and I'm asking for help figuring <coughs> it out. Uh, so right now, you know, at least this month, at least, the way I'm thinking of describing is that I think it's a type of anchor coverage. And in the sense that, like, if you turn on uh, television or radio during a breaking news story, you've got an anchor doing their best to keep up with what's going on, to have a coherent narrative for the public. But behind the scenes, you know, they've got an earpiece in their ear, they've got a, they've got a screen with the wires coming on, their producers are talking to them, possibly in both ears. They've got an eyewitness live via satellite to the left, on the right, they've got a, a pundit who knows something or an expert who knows something. And the, the anchor is trying to pull this all together. I kind of feel like I'm doing something similar on Twitter, except rather than having a full-time professional newsroom supporting me, I've got my tweets. They do all of those exact jobs for me and allow me to keep the narrative going. And so it ends up being a combination of real-time news and real-time oral history, because a lot of the stuff I retweet isn't necessarily newsworthy, but it's important historically of how people are feeling and reacting at different moments. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's really hard to really pinpoint exactly what I'm doing and what role it has in the newsroom. All I know is I've been blessed by the fact that NPR allows me to do this. And so, at this point, and I, I want to close with this part before we, we go to uh, questions and discussion, the, the big conversation we're having at NPR and some other news organizations are having is, when does this type of journalism work? When doesn't it work? And in the cases it does work, how do you scale it and teach it? And what tools do you need? And so we're trying to come up with examples where it might work in other contexts. It seems to me that the two types of scenarios where this works best 
are when you have either a critical mass of eyewitnesses you can reach or a critical mass of subject matter experts you can talk to. So in the same way that I've been able to do this for the Arab Spring, I bet a reporter could do something very similar on climate change or genetically modified crops or any other topic where there are just enough people using Twitter, and Facebook and other things for that matter. It doesn't have to be Twitter. But there are people out there who know what they're talking about. And rather than assuming that a reporter is going to pull together a story, share it with the world, and then give the public a little puny comments thread on some website to respond, I tried to do work where from the very beginning the public is involved. And in many cases, the public is acting as my assignment editor as is the case in this particular story, because I had no idea this was going on until they said, hey, look at this. Uh, we're also hoping to build some tools. Um, I've got around 55,000 followers, which is great. But for example, Scott Simon at NPR, he has over a million. And at some point, he stopped using Twitter interactively, asking questions and discussing things with people, because every time he would tweet, he'd get 1,000 replies. And there's no way to have a conversation like that. So one of the things we're trying to figure out, figure out is how you triage replies on Twitter. Are there ways that you can use algorithms to detect people that are going to be more likely to know what they're talking about, or eyewitnesses because of their geolocation, or because they're sharing multimedia content, and then can whitelist people and blacklist people, and look for people that are one degree of separation from your followers, et cetera, and have that be output in the form of either a Twitter account or Twitter lists. So that's one of the things we're thinking of building. Um, another thing we're hoping to do is to really dig into my tweets over the last nine months to see if there are any patterns in there, not only that are of historical interest for people who are interested in the Middle East, but patterns that can help me and others do this type of job better. And after about six months of conversations with Twitter, <coughs> yesterday I received this. This is a, an Excel file of over 95,000 tweets that I have sent since February 2005. This, oh, excuse me, 2007. This is my very first tweet, February 17, 2007. Watching Kaylee play her extra saucer while Suzanne rips up some pita for the hummus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so as of last night, I now have a data dump of everything I have ever done on Twitter. And at this moment, there is a software developer at NPR who is taking this and putting it into a searchable database and connecting it with my current stream of tweets. Initially, this is going to be secured and in-house so we can take a look at it and figure out how we want to use it. Our ultimate goal is to make all of this public in some form of a Carbon API so that anyone who wants to create visualizations based on my coverage of the Arab Spring, and not necessarily, not necessarily what I was tweeting, but all the retweets of the people on the ground, that's where the real data is. I'm hoping that there will be at some point in the, in the relatively near future, anyone will have access to this data to create visualizations. And we'll probably have a rule, something like if you create a visualization or use it, it has to be under a Creative Commons license or whatever. I don't know how we're going to do it. But we, we just want to encourage, oh, if you're wondering why the word lesbians is up here, um, <laughs> gay girl in Damascus. It, I, I figured that was going to come up at some point. I was curious early to see when I first started talking about gay girl in Damascus. I'm happy not to talk about it. It comes up way too often. But if we want to talk about that at some point, we can. So hence, lesbians in my spreadsheet. Um, so um, that's mainly what I wanted, wanted to talk about today. Uh, yeah, let me ask you if yeah. I may. Will you, I asked uh, Andy a question before, again, um, who are these people? Yeah. And tell the story you told me. Um, here's one story that I can't go into too much detail on because I haven't published it, but I can give you the basics of it. Um, before I mentioned this guy who was helping me with identifying uh, mortar rounds, and he also helped me identify um, landmines and other things. And after Tripoli fell, he contacted me and he said, you might want to hear a story about what some of us did over the last six months. And I began talking to him and some others. And basically, it's a group of Americans telling their story of how they volunteered to help the, um, the opposition movement uh, in, in Libya. And uh, so he was telling me about all the things he worked on and all the stuff he knows. And clearly, the guy has a huge amount of military knowledge. And so 
near the end of this conversation, I said, so I have to ask you, are, are you active duty? Or are you ex-military? What's, what's your story? And he said, oh, no, sir, I'm in school. And so I said, oh, what, are, you, are you in grad school or something? And he's like, no, sir, I'm homeschooled. I'm 15. <laughs> you want to speak to my dad? You want to speak to my dad? <laughs> and his dad got on, and I talked to his dad. This eventually was his summer project. Um, and so I'll have more to talk. Yeah, I, well, so that's all I can say about it right now, but uh, stay tuned on NPR for that story. So my question, one question before we go, where do you see this going, and how do you tweet tweeting now as, as, in terms of its significance, um, compared to, say, Facebook and other things? I think it depends. Um, like, some people have asked me lately, why haven't I switched over to Google Plus? Um, and I, I, I'm on Google Plus. I like a lot of its features. There are a lot of very cool people there. The problem for the moment is my sources aren't there. The type of stories that I'm working on, those people are on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Flickr. And so un unless I switch to another topic, using Google Plus isn't going to help me. The one time it did was during the massacres in Norway a couple of months back. Because a friend of mine was in Oslo. And first I asked him if he was OK. And he wrote back on Twitter, says, I'm fine. Not enough room to describe what's going on here, switching to Google Plus. And so I started watching what he was doing on Google Plus and seeing who he was sharing. And so you know, over the course of, of, of that day, he and I aggregated what was going on while he was describing stuff in real time while I was finding other sources. And so it worked really well in that one context, because there are plenty of Norwegians using Google Plus. There aren't many Libyans using Google Plus yet. There aren't any Syrians who have it. And so Twitter has been ideal for the type of work I'm doing now. Now, a lot of these people are also on Facebook. Facebook. In fact, a lot of the actual action takes place on Facebook, because there are groups there that are organizing revolutionary activities. They're you know, volunteering behind the scenes to raise money for different efforts, et cetera. Um, but they're often in closed groups, and they're almost always in Arabic. And so I'm limited by, the, by both because I do not speak Arabic, and I don't have access to most of these groups either. Whereas Twitter, the conversations are public. Now, because they're public, they can't say everything there. But there's often enough that's being said, and for better or worse, enough people with loose lips that you're able to hear a lot of things before they happen. So, like people were telling me the week before Tripoli was liberated, saying it's it's happening this weekend. Make sure you have free time to watch. And I said okay. And I knew they were going to try it at some point. I was skeptical it was going to be that weekend. And then early on Saturday, I started seeing people tweeting something about Operation Mermaid Dawn. Like Mermaid Dawn, who comes up with stuff like this? <laughs> but the fact that the people were saying it were people who had always been reliable for me in Libya. That they were the ones saying it. I took it seriously. And by Sunday morning, it was clear that there were there were insurgent forces rising up all across Tripoli, and things fell very quickly after that. And so, so you know, in some ways, I'm always skeptical about what I see. But more often than not, the stuff they tell me that's most outlandish ends up being true. Unless it has to do with one of Gaddafi's sons. Uh, Gaddafi has died nine times now, by my count. And so, but other things are often surprisingly accurate. I'm going to open it to uh, questions. I'd like to invite students that okay. have first first crack. And those of you who are students at uh, Kennedy School or elsewhere, uh, you're first. Yes. Sure. Uh, so, the, the example I guess I'd like to go to is the Haiti earthquake. Mm -hmm. Following that, but I guess it can extend beyond that. Um, where there's just an insane flood of information online. Right. Um, how do you, uh, in the heat of the moment, decide what is real and what is not, um, and what's sort of your cutoff? before you decided to act on it or report it. Right. Um, Haiti was easier for me because I already had a strong network of people involved in first response and, and global disasters. And so um, I probably heard about the earthquake 30 minutes after it happened. Uh, I got sucked into some other things trying to figure out how, how I could help people in peer reported. But within an hour or two after that, I was going on Twitter and going on Facebook asking people if they had any information they could share. And several people came forward on Facebook and said, uh, my family is based outside of Port-au-Prince. We run a private school. If you want to talk to us, we're around. Um, and this is how you can access us. Uh, I then got them to friend me so I could see what they were talking about on their, on their personal profile. 
and you could see going back weeks into their into their archive that they spoke Creole as well as English, that they were talking about plans for Carnival and the costumes that they were all developing, and how things were going on at that school. It was very clear that this wasn't someone who just created a hoax just to say, oh, we're doing something for the prince. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything they know is going to be right, but it, should, it at least demonstrated that they were in the middle of the action. Um, so in the case of Haiti, I think for the first two days afterwards, in the morning edition, the lead NPR's main uh, news show in the morning, the lead stories each morning were based on interviews we did we, of people we met through uh, Facebook and through Twitter. Um, and uh, now we met a lot more through the, uh, through Facebook and Twitter, but these were the ones that we could get via satellite or Skype or whatever, and uh, felt confident in their stories. So in some ways, uh, Haiti was easier for me. Libya was tough, because I didn't know a single person in Libya before protests started there. I started getting tweets from random people saying, things are kicking off, try to pay attention next week. And so I started asking around, uh, mostly privately, do you know anyone in the Libyan expat community I could start talking to? And I found a couple people, I think, in Chicago and someone in New Orleans, I think, who got on Skype with me and just gave me a quick overview of the expat community in the US, London, and a few other places, and some people that they follow on Twitter. Uh, so there were probably five or six people I started following on Twitter, none of whom were using their real names. In fact, to this day, I don't know all of their genders. Uh, and I may never will. <coughs> but people vouched for them initially, and then by watching their tweet streams over time, I could decide for myself whether they were legit. Uh, sometimes they would upload video that they would literally record from inside their houses. And like one, of, one guy was amazing. He was, he was tweeting in real time as bullet holes were going through his house and his family was hunkered down as a fight was breaking up just outside. And somehow he had the fortitude to hold up his camera, photograph the bullet holes, and then the fighting going on outside. And that was, that was good enough for me at that point. Uh, in other cases, it, it's been harder because sometimes people come out of the woodwork and say, hey, did you know that Hamis Gaddafi died and Gaddafi himself is in grave condition because of a kamikaze attack on his compound in Tripoli? Well, in that particular case, both <coughs> sources I didn't know and sources I knew very well were saying that exact same thing because they wanted it to be true. Mm -hmm. And also, it's a good, easy form of psychological warfare to get other people thinking that Gaddafi is dead. And so, there have been many, many cases where the opposition has been almost as unreliable as the government had been. But I think in many of those cases, it was intentional informational warfare. And in other cases, it was just wishful thinking. And so very quickly, I had to be skeptical of almost everything I was seeing coming through Libya. And uh, I started focusing specifically on who were the people that were producing media. Uh, the first guy I encountered, his name was Nabus, Mohammed Nabus. He was cousin or nephew of one of the expats that I met, uh, talked to in the US. And after Benghazi was liberated, he managed to jury-rig a satellite collection and launched what became known as uh, Libya al-Hura, or basically Free Libya television. And every day, he would go on live stream and anchor in real time what was going on. He'd take phone calls from people across Libya and he would just translate and say what was going on. He would go out with his camera and, and shoot his own footage. He'd, he'd be on his cell phone sometimes while he was out in his field while his wife was back on live stream holding the phone up so we could hear what he was reporting. Um, and at one point, he put out a really impassioned video basically begging the US and the international community to get involved. And it was one of the, it was shown across networks all over the world. And I think it was one of the things that really instigated um, NATO getting involved. The night before the bomb started falling in NATO, up from NATO. Uh, I was up until one or two in the morning following him in real time in a chat room while he was talking about traveling around southern Benghazi, uh, collecting proof that uh, Gaddafi had violated the ceasefire. And it, it was, you know, it was all chaotic and a bit of a mess, but he seemed to be on the right track. I went to bed, slept for three or four hours, and then got back up and started getting tweets, like direct messages from random people saying, is it true Mo is dead? And I said, what are you talking about? I was just, I was following him in the stream three hours ago. I mean, he's probably editing right now or something. And I looked at his stream and it was daylight footage of the house he was trying to get to and it was clear that a shell had hit the house and either injured or killed a couple of children. And so 
I sat back and thought, okay, well, he's okay. He did everything right. And then someone sent me the link to uh, some audio his wife had just posted. After I went to bed, he went to a different neighborhood uh, with his uncle on the back of a pickup truck. It didn't seem safe, so his uncle said, let's go back home. And Mo said, no, I'm going to stay with some other folks here. And while he was narrating a stream in real time, the stream just stopped. And it was probably at that moment that a sniper took him out. And he died a few hours later. Uh, his wife took over the stream. She was eight months pregnant at that point. And she was the anchor of the stream until like the day before her dog was born in June. And so even though it's hard to know who to trust in situations like this, there are people working on the ground with no journalist experience whatsoever that are putting their lives on the line in ways that we can never imagine. Because they're not going to get any type of protections that a journalist would be lucky to get in Libya because they're clearly aiding and abetting the, the, uh, the opposition. So if, if he or his wife had been caught, they would have been executed on the spot, or, or worse. Uh, and so over time, you end up meeting a lot of these people who you have to learn to trust, because the footage that they're showing you has to come from somewhere. And, and often, it's coming directly from them. Questions? Hello. Other students? Oh, sorry. No? Okay. No. Well, I just had a related question. Um, you know, and, and these are heroic stories and wonderful stories. But, um, you know, I can see how you can analyze um, the material and decide what's reliable and, you know, it's your full-time job. What about the, the people who um, are, are reading the raw tweets? Right. Um, you know, consumers are reading the raw <coughs> tweets. They've rejected gatekeepers, even NPR. You know, mm -hmm. they don't even go there anymore. Right. How do they know? How are they educated into what to... Um, what to trust and whatnot, because there is, you know, a lot of people know what they're talking about, a lot of people don't. I would argue most people don't. Um, how many times has George Clooney died on Twitter? Um, it, I mean, it happens to celebrities all the time. Someone says something, it spreads like wildfire, and a little while later it gets squashed. Uh, so what I try to do is take advantage of that, that interim period between a rumor coming out and a rumor either spreading very fast or whatever's going to happen next. So we can either nip it in the bud or clarify it or say it's correct and confirm it and move on. And so uh, when I see outlandish stuff, I will often retweet it, but I will annotate it. And I'll say, I'll sometimes just say, this seems like it will be asked to me. Can anyone prove otherwise? And because I've got 55,000 followers, having me say, I think this is BS, that begins to circulate as well. Now, granted, people who spend most of their time on Twitter talking about Justin Bieber, they're not going to see it. But people who are following the events in the Middle East, hopefully, through the grapevine that Twitter is, either, if they don't see my tweet, they'll see other people at least raising questions. And I think there have been enough false starts in the news related to the Arab Spring that I think people know to be skeptical more often, even though there are some things they do want to believe. Uh, one thing that's made it easier for me is every time that I've started in one of these countries, uh, like I was fortunate in Tunisia and in Egypt to know three or four people on the ground in each place, or who were expats that I knew for a fact were working uh, for their respective causes. I started following, I started watching their conversations. I tried to figure out who had they been following the longest on Twitter, who did they, they retweet the most, who did they at reply the most, what was the nature of their Arab replies? Was it, did it seem transactional, like answering a question? Or was it informal? Did they use emoticons when talking to people? Did they make jokes? Uh, and over a period of days, like the three or four people I knew in Egypt expanded to 30 or 40 people, because I got a sense of who their social networks were. Not necessarily in the Twitter sense of social networks, but the people that they trusted and were interacting with online. And so that made it a lot easier. It didn't necessarily mean everything they would say would be true, but I got a sense of who people that I felt comfortable with, who they trusted. And so it raised the margins into a better, a better area. Yeah, uh, first, this is, this is completely fascinating. Um, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I've been writing about the role of stories in social movements and other forms of collective action. And, you know, from Selma to the Tunisian shopkeeper, stories have been triggers for collective action and have spread through networks and communities. I'm curious um, about if you have thoughts about uh, 
what what is different about this ecosystem for the kind of stories that can be told? Different people have access and are able to tell their stories. The speed with which they are transmitted, uh, the, 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 uh, the effectiveness of them because you can you know, have visual verification or, or anything else in terms of but, but, because you began with a story and, and, and its impact, and obviously people have talked about that. But do you have, do you have thoughts about the kinds of stories that can, can uh, propagate in this new ecosystem? Uh, it really depends. Uh, all sorts of things can happen. Uh, there are, you know, there are times where Twitter becomes a play-by-play -play of protesters marching out of Tuck Rear and being confronted by thugs with Molotov cocktails, and you see that whole thing play out. And then all of a sudden, Al Jazeera starts a, a video stream of it on, on their network. And you get to essentially see in real time. They've got the one camera view here, but you've got 50 people seeing it from different angles down here. And so there were many times during the Cairo revolution, the Egyptian revolution, where I literally felt like Twitter allowed me to float above it in a helicopter. And especially for people who would describe specifically where they were, like standing in front of the Egyptian museum, the building next door is burning. You know, I could literally jot down or just look at a Google map and have a sense of where these people were talking from. And um, so it becomes a form of situational awareness. And I really began to understand that when I went to Cairo in late June, early July for an event, at, at a training with the International Center for Journalists. And uh, when I got there, uh, some of the Egyptian protesters and, and techies uh, organized uh, a tweet up me to meet some women in person. And so about 40 people showed up, many more than I expected, and we're just hanging out on the rooftop, and we start hearing bang, 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 bang in the distance. Everyone pulls out their phones at the same time, and within five minutes, the whole place empties because there uh, there was a fight breaking out in Tupperware Square between families of those who had been killed before and government thugs, essentially. And it was spiraling out of control, and the bang, bang, bangs we had heard were tear gas. And so, you know, I decided to tag along one group. I basically asked which one of you was not planning to fight, and the ones that raised their hands, I went with them. Uh, and so we basically got within about 100 feet of Tucker Square, and we were stuck at Tucker Square. I mean, it's, it's a circle, really. It's a traffic circle, and then there are streets radiating out of it. And, uh, you know, we were navigating through the, the tear gas, and we get to this one spot. It's about a block long, just before Tucker Square. In front of me, like probably at the end, not this, not where the, uh, this door is, but the door back there, there's a row of policemen facing away from me, all in riot gear, and rocks are flying over them towards us. So we're behind police lines. Somehow we've gotten behind police lines. Behind me, about 100 feet that way, were reinforcements of police, you know, setting up their, their gear and uh, their riot gear and, and tending to some of their own injured. And so, we basically stood in the middle of this acting stupid because we didn't want anyone to think that we were, you know, we were taking sides there. Uh, we were, I, I couldn't pull out a camera. I, I could only pull out the phone because we would have been arrested probably if we had real cameras. But what I noticed at that moment was I could see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, feel it, but I had no idea what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. I could only sense what was going on immediately around me. I didn't know that over a thousand people were injured a hundred yards away from me. And I didn't know that until the next day. It wasn't until we got in a car and I was able to catch my breath and start paying attention on Twitter that I realized the magnitude of the situation. And so um, what Twitter and other social networks seem to do is they fill in the blanks that a single reporter on the scene or a single camera cannot capture. Even if you're even if you're basically you've got a bunch of screens and you're watching this is the CNN angle and this is the Al Jazeera angle and this is the whatever angle. I still feel like when I'm watching Twitter, I get a better sense of what's going on on the ground. And also, it reflects the fog of war. I assume a lot of it isn't true, or it's an exaggeration. But that's what the people on the ground are believing at that moment. And the way it captures, you know, even if it's just for five minutes, um, they think that something terrible has happened, and you feel the panic, and then it calms down after that. You would never see that through a camera. I mean, you might see people running or people looking scared, but you don't feel the panic in the same way. There's something about Twitter, because it's text, it's, there's almost something like a fictional narrative that you would read in a novel. Mm. Because 
when you're following it in real time, you can't see it here. You have to visualize it in your head. And sometimes what you visualize is, is even worse than what's going on on the ground. Or you have a perception of it, and it, 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 it's much more emotional that way. And so, like when uh, Lulu Roundabout in Bahrain was raided, I was sitting, I was out, I was in a restaurant waiting in line to get into a bathroom. I never made it inside because I just sat, sat leaning toward the door for like 90 minutes, watching the raid play out on Twitter. And our people were tweeting things such as, they're setting the tents on fire. They're shooting at us. The women and children are huddled in the center. I'm with a two-year-old boy or four-year-old boy. He's so upset he's throwing up. I don't know if his parents are alive. To have see that in real time, but only see it in terms of text, that, that series of text is going to haunt me more than some of the most graphic images I've seen. Because I tell, uh, excuse me, Lulu Roundabout was in my head in real time while people were in an utter state of panic. And so... Now, when you read it res retrospectively, it's still very dramatic and powerful. But there's something about real-time narratives that convey emotions, not necessarily facts, but just the emotions of what's going on. is a form of storytelling that I've never experienced in any other form. Yes? Um, I was just wondering, in terms of how I was able to see the, almost now, the reflections of the Egyptian Revolution, um, at kind of just at an international level, I feel like while Ghanem, it was sort of kind of dying down the resistance uh, in Tahrir Square, but yep. then Ghanem had the interview that was very impassioned and got people yep. back in there. And I'm wondering whether that's sort of accurate in terms of what was happening in your experience and what you saw on Twitter, whether that was kind of a direct effect in kind of empowering the movement. I think it was an important pivot point um, um, because the 24, 48 hours leading to that moment I'd argue the protesters were, were getting kind of demoralized. You know, as hard as they kept pushing and as, as, as strong as they were maintaining the integrity of, their, of the square, they, um, it wasn't growing any further at that point. And some people were just plain exhausted because they hadn't slept in days. And then while Ghanim gets released, this is, this is the Google executive who uh, was one of the administrators of the, uh, the We Are Khaled Said page. The, I don't want to go into the full history of it, but basically there had been offline and online activism in Egypt going back a long time, and he was one of these people that tried to bridge the gap. And uh, he was arrested in the early days of the revolution, and then when they finally released him, he went and did a couple of TV interviews that were very, very emotional and broadcast across the satellite networks in, in Egypt. And I'm still convinced that that brought people back out in the streets. Um, that combined with the internet being shut off, because so many people, there were a lot of people who were staying at home, talking on their phones, getting texts, or relying on the internet to find out what, how things were going. And as soon as the government shut that down, it made it harder for activists to communicate to the rest of the world, but it caused everyone, out to go, everyone else to go outside and ask what the hell's going on. And so they all went to Top Clear Square to find out. And so I'd say both Ghanim's release and his subsequent interviews and the shutting off the internet both backfired against the regime. Now, who's to say if it wouldn't have succeeded? I think they probably still would have succeeded over the long term, but it would have taken longer. But both of those, I think, just nudged it forward a little further. In the same way that the internet nudged things forward. I, I'm not one of these people who would ever call these things Twitter revolutions or Facebook revolutions. I think it's an insult to the people who marched in the streets and died. Uh, I don't think their families would call it that whether you agree with them or not. I mean, the reality is people had to die in order to achieve these goals. Now, social media served as an accelerant. It served as an organizing tool. It served as all sorts of things. But it didn't mean that the revolutions could play entirely on the internet and so on quit their position because of it. There had to be action in the streets, and, uh, and combined with moments like the one you just described. How do you compare the importance of, just in the terms of the technology acting as an accelerant of Facebook, Twitter, and then cable news coverage. Yep. That's the toughest question. Because there are there are intellectual camps that are out there that take different positions on this. Some say that there's a group of cyber utopians who believe this was all because of the internet and social media. You've got others who say, yes, the internet played an extremely important role. And then you've got others raising their hands and saying, no, it was Al Jazeera and the satellite networks. 
And my reaction is, why can't it be all of the above? And because it's probably a bit of all of the above, there's no way we're going to be able to come up with a unifying theory for all of it. Because no phone company is going to give us a data dump of every text message that was sent, every conversation that took place. Anytime people sat around smoking shisha watching TV, satellite TV in a cafe, so much of these revolutions take place in moments like that that we'll never really know. But one thing I am convinced of is that there was a feedback loop that was created between uh, satellite networks and mainstream media, so Al Jazeera above all, but others as well, in which they would rely on user-generated content reports and amplify them through their own networks. And people would see that, and then they would react to it and perhaps use social media in their own way to report more stuff. This, was really the, this has really been the case in both Syria and early on in Libya, because for a long time there weren't reporters there. There still aren't really reporters in Syria. And so you have to rely on the footage that people are able to sneak out. And I think a lot of the outrage that people had over both countries' situations was because of that feedback loop where people would put stuff on YouTube, the media would pick it up, which would drive more content being created. So I think that's absolutely accurate. But to be able to, I, I don't think there's an easy way of, of quantifying which type of media played what type of role. It was, it was an interplay. Um, I, I'm curious, governments, autocratic governments particularly, are, are getting wind of all this stuff. I think by now they've definitely clued into the fact that you, know, you probably exist and are following your Twitter as I'm closely sure. as, as, they, as, as you are. Um, how much of your conversations are done offline? Um, in private, and how much is, is public, and is there any of your um, any concerns that you're goading or, or drawing people out uh, and putting them in, in, in danger? Um, I'm not concerned about that part because I, if I'm going to retweet someone, I only tweet something that is already very publicly out there. Um, I'm not going to take privileged information and share it and put someone's name on it if it's going to endanger their lives. Um, with, with Tunisia and Egypt, I didn't have many offline conversations because the uh, the um, protesters were just so aggressively online, uh, especially in the case of early on in, in Tunisia when everyone started using Facebook to organize protests. I talked to uh, a protester that I knew after it was over, and I said, why on earth did you use Facebook with your real name? And she said, we were beyond the point of no return at this point when she got involved, either they were going to win, or they were going to be arrested, or they were going to die, or they were going to go into exile. Those were the only options. So you might as well do it on using your real name so history will remember you. And so I saw that a lot in Tunisia. In Egypt it was interesting because a lot of people were using, were, weren't using their real names and they were using different avatars on Twitter. And the morning after Mubarak fell, they changed their Twitter accounts to show their faces. It's just extraordinary to see who these people were. I got at least half of their genders wrong. Um, but when it came to Syria and Libya, you have no choice but to talk to people offline, partially because the internet penetration rates are much lower in both countries. But not only that, uh, the governments were a little more advanced in terms of surveillance. Iran is most likely, if not definitely, assisting Syria. There's probably no form of communication that's truly safe. And so we often have to leave it up to the protesters in terms of how they want to communicate. Um, sometimes it's a matter of dealing with intermediaries that are outside the country, but even they have problems sometimes. Uh, during Libya, I use Skype a lot, even though I know Skype is not 100% secure by any means. They were, comf they were insisting, let's use it this way. I want to make it easy for you. And I said, you, you don't want to make it easier for me. Are you sure about this? And they said, I'm getting on Skype right now. Where are you? Because they were, they were much more concerned about getting their message out. And their confidence was just so supreme. They didn't think that that could often get away of, of tapping into it. Uh, in in uh, one case, I know that uh, they didn't have phones in a certain area, but they were able to jury-rig a satellite connection. And they had expat relatives send them magic jacks. Yeah. So they could make phone calls, and uh, the Syrian, or excuse me, the Libyan government didn't put that together, and so we were able to talk to people on the phone in ways that they felt pretty secure about because it was VOIP. Uh, 
even though, again, none of this was 100% secure, and they were risking it every time they did it. But we were following their lead and not saying, oh, please go on this, go on Skype or, or Facebook messages so we could chat. Um, they had felt that the, the revolution had gone far enough that they would take certain risks. As Fritz said, this has been fascinating. And Andy, thank you so much. Thank we you. We really enjoyed it. We would my love pleasure. to have you come back and talk to us some more. I hope so. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Thank you.